Well, here in Hebrews 6 and 7, we've got the, the argument being, uh, being continued, really. Uh, to encourage those who had believed, I suggested uh, in the previous studies in Hebrews that they uh, would have believed maybe 20 years before this, uh, this letter was written, uh, maybe been converted by the preaching of Peter in Jerusalem straight after the resurrection, and yet they were beginning to slack, and they were beginning to fall off, and that can happen to all of us. And so... This letter is trying to encourage them not to do that, and it does so by continually focusing them, or refocusing them, upon the person of Jesus. And I've suggested that this whole letter, or most of it, is in fact a transcript of an exhortation or a sermon at the breaking of bread. And therefore there is this continual emphasis, as there should be in our thinking and uh, in our whole uh, approach to spiritual life, there is this emphasis upon Jesus uh, as, as a person. And so picking up there in, uh, in verse 1 of Hebrews 6, he says, Leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, <clears throat> let us go on unto perfection. And I want to focus a bit on that word, to go on, um, because... The, the, the Greek word really has, carries the idea of being driven, being driven on. And in fact, it's, it's used by, uh, well, about uh, the, the shipwreck of Paul, where the boat was driven on by the wind. And you see the sort of relevance, really, I, I think, to us, that it's not so much us forcing ourselves to go on unto what he calls perfection, but of us allowing ourselves to be driven on by the wind uh, of, uh, of God's Spirit. So although there is an element of our volition, of our election to go God's way, and of course there must be, or else there'd have been no point in this letter being written to uh, encourage these believers to, to do just that. Uh, if we choose to go God's way, we are confirmed in that. And he is therefore leading us on. Uh, and it's, as I say, the idea is not so much let us go on, but let us be driven on, let us be moved on unto perfection or completeness. And, of course, who is the perfect one? It is Jesus. It's as if the whole purpose of our lives is to be led on until we fully come, when he comes back, to be changed into him. Not in that we as persons will no longer exist, but that in a moral sense we shall, as it were, finally actually be made like him in the same way as now in this life we are given that status, and spiritually we are counted as him because we are in Christ. So this idea of, of being on some sort of journey, in verse 12, let us not be lazy, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So we are electing, we are choosing to follow. We are like Abraham on a journey uh, going because of God's word, of, of promise, and him leading us on. And then verse 19 of uh, chapter 7, verse 19 of chapter 7, because of the great hope we have of eternity in God's kingdom, we are drawing near unto God. We are being drawn unto God by the certainty of that hope. Now, if we do not have a sure hope because our own sense of our own sin and failure is so great that 
uh, we are not sure at all about whether we have this better hope, this great hope, uh, then we will not, in that sense, be drawn near to God. It is when fear of uh, our own failure and uh, guilt about our own lack of commitment, etc., when that is taken away, then we really can come closer to God. So these are all pictures of journey, of moving onwards, and it's easy to assume that we're all on a journey, and one hears that phrase quite a lot, well, we're all on a journey. But of course the, the crucial question is, yes, but where to? The fact we are all changing as we get older, that is just normal. That is what happens to absolutely everybody on this planet. So it's not a, a case of, well, I'm on a journey. Uh, the, the question is, where to and with whom? And are we being driven on, as it were, by, by the wind of God's Spirit? Let us go on, let us be driven on unto that final perfection, that final end point is to be made like Jesus in actual bodily personal existence in reality in the same way as now we are counted like that by status now on this idea of uh, moving and, and uh, traveling and being on a journey chapter 6 verse 18 is perhaps clearest we have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us now he's writing to Hebrews, he's writing to people with a good appreciation of the Jewish uh, background of the gospel, and clearly they would have understood this to be a reference to the cities of refuge, the whole idea of fleeing into refuge. And that whole provision was for people like you and me, people who had, in a sense, sinned, done things which were worthy of death. And yet, if you see what I mean, they kind of didn't quite mean it. For example, somebody is, uh, is killed accidentally. You're chopping wood and the uh, head flies off the axe and it kills somebody. And you are therefore liable to be killed by the next of kin. So therefore, you better drop everything and run into the city of refuge. And in fact, they were told to make the way there plain and clear. So then... I don't wish to justify sin, but we are, I think, very much in that situation of the person who was out there working and committed manslaughter, and there he is or she is, uh, guilty of, uh, in one sense, of death, and uh, prone to the death penalty, and therefore needing to, to run immediately and quickly into the city of refuge. And they could stay in that city of refuge and be safe until the death of the high priest, and then when the high priest died, they were totally free again. And they were to abide in that city of refuge. And if they went out, then they were liable to be killed. Now, in all that, of course, in outline terms, you can't push it too closely, um, we see ourselves. And I'm not, as I say, justifying human sin, but there is an element to which we don't want to do it. I mean, we as believers, I'm not saying that is true for people in the world generally, but I, I don't believe that we who are believers in the Lord Jesus, that we willfully sin. I like to think we do not anyway, that we do not harden our conscience and forget about our relationship with the Lord and just go and do what we want. And I'm also not, not saying on the other hand that sin is a kind of, ah, oh, whoopsie, you know, yeah, well, that's how it was. Um, sin is sin, and that is that, and the wages of sin is death, and that is also that. 
in the same way as the person who, as I say, was uh, chopping wood and the axe flew off and killed a guy, they were prone to death. The, the law could have said, or God could have said, yeah, look, in those kind of cases, don't worry about it, that's fine. You, you obviously didn't mean it, so that's, that's good, play on. But he doesn't. He says, if you are caught by the, the avenger of blood, you will be killed. So therefore, you must drop all and run into the city of refuge. And it's interesting that the first cities of refuge they were given were nearly all in mountainous areas. They were not very convenient to get to. They involved a lot of uh, uphill walking or running. And so, in one sense, it is with us. Sin requires some conscious effort, some conscious election on our part to deal with. It's no good us shrugging and thinking, as maybe the Israelite would have thought, Ah, look, hang, this is a bit unreasonable. I didn't mean to kill the guy. Um, That's unreasonable that I now have to face a death sentence because of that. I didn't mean it. I'm not a murderer. But the fact is, you know, God could have in his law written that and said, yeah, fine, don't worry about it in these cases. But he doesn't. He provides a way of escape, which is not, which is not simply saying, yeah, well, I didn't mean it. There has got to be a facing up to our situation as sinners. And no uh, justification, no uh, endlessly going on about situational ethics. Well, I did it because, and what really happened was this, and all that kind of stuff. This all opens up, I think, a whole grey scale, which may, in ultimate moral terms, be valid and may actually exist. But it is not for us to get into that, because as soon as we start to get into that, you and I will end up justifying... Uh, all our sins and failures, and so God has dealt with it another way. That we are to make some effort. We are to recognize guilt in that sense, uh, and that uh, the death sentence is legitimate, even though we might think that it's all a bit unfair, it wasn't me, it was Adam, or whatever. But the point is, ultimately, it is legitimate for every one of us, and there's no point sitting there arguing about it, justifying yourself, There has to be an urgency in our position, and that is to run, to flee into the Lord Jesus, who is the city of refuge. And it's his death, of course, uh, as the death of the high priest, which is our ultimate freedom. And so there is something unique about the Lord Jesus, and there is an urgency on our side to run into him and to abide in him. And this, of course, this urgency was what these Hebrews were starting to, to forget. That urgency is there, absolutely, for us. And so they were to abide in this city in the same way as we are counted as being in Christ. And I have said that um, what this means is that we are counted as if we are Jesus. That it's not that God turns a blind eye to human sin. He doesn't, and nor should we. But we are counted as if we are the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, there's very exalted language used about the, the sureness and the certainty of our, of our position in him. Um, I take chapter 6 verse 13. Because God could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Surely, blessing I will bless you. Now, it's as if God is going out of his way. As Paul says in Romans, God commends his love to us in that Christ died for the ungodly. 
And the emphasis, I think, in verse 14 is on the word surely. Surely, I really will do this. And how can I try and persuade you? Well, okay, I can't swear by anyone else who's greater than me, so I will swear by myself. I really will bless you. And what is the blessing? Well, it wasn't simply you will sort of live forever on earth. You will have the internal inheritance of the land. Uh, In Acts 3, we're told that God has sent his Son to bless us, Acts 3.25 and 26, in turning away every one of us from our iniquities. So the blessing promised to Abraham is so much more than simply a physical inheritance of land or, or of this earth forever. It is the turning away of each of us from our sins. Now, it is therefore forgiveness. And that is, in that context, that's why Peter says, so go on, repent and be baptized into Christ. Take this up for yourself. Um, But it's not even only forgiveness. It is turning us away from our iniquities. And so again you see this element of God's work within human lives and within the human heart. Not simply to forgive, not simply to give us eternal life when Jesus comes, not simply to give us a place in his kingdom, but to actually uh, work in our lives in order to turn us away from the way of sin. Now this can happen in so many ways. It can be through meeting with people, through forming relationships with the good people who God brings into our lives. It can be through him removing uh, situations from our lives which uh, would lead us into sin. It can be in all sorts of ways. But the point is that just as let us go on, let us be driven on by the wind, by the spirit, unto perfection, unto that final status of uh, not just being in status in Christ, but being actually morally him at the last day when we, we shall be changed. Um, so we've got to let that process work in our lives. And so because of that, he, he talks in such positive terms about the totality of what God has done, that really and truly God will give us this blessing. We are baptized and in Christ promises to Abraham are made to us, and they're not just eternal life at the end of the day but forgiveness now and not just forgiveness now but turning us away from our sins and this idea of God commending his love in this trying desperately to persuade us that this is for real that this is true by saying okay I can swear by nobody greater than myself so I will swear by myself you see that in 17 verse 17 God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that's us, the unchangeability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. So our comfort, our sense of reality that this is all for real, for me, should really be so strong, and God has worked very hard to try to persuade us of this by swearing by himself and then saying ah yeah well uh, maybe uh, my promise is um, my swearing to you my my covenant promise maybe that's not enough for you okay I'll confirm that covenant promise by an oath you think like wait a minute God's already promised us and sworn by himself that he really is going to forgive us why does he need to confirm it by an oath so that there's two immutable things the covenant the promise, that is, 
um, and also the oath which confirms the promise. God is really going out of his way to, to try to persuade us. And I think it's because he knows, he realizes that we uh, are so slow to believe that really I am forgiven and I will live forever in God's kingdom. And you could argue that one reason for the cross was that God was seeking to persuade us of this simple fact. We say that the death of Jesus on the cross, in line with what Paul says in Romans, uh, was to confirm the promises made to Abraham. But did they need confirmation? I mean, if God says, I will give you forgiveness, blessing in your life, in your spiritual life, uh, eternal life in the future, inheritance of the kingdom uh, on this earth, well, isn't that enough? Does it need confirming? Did it need an oath to confirm the promise? Well, in one sense, no, because we should take God at his word. And if he said this, well, okay. So, in one sense, the whole death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus being the blood of the covenant, the blood which showed that the covenant was for real, was in one sense unnecessary if people would just believe God at his word. But because God had had a lot of experience with people, and he knows how weak is our faith, he has planned and set up the whole wonderful system whereby his son's death confirmed that his love and his promise of saving us was for real. And I think every time we really doubt God's forgiveness and every time we doubt that we shall live forever in God's kingdom, it must be so frustrating from, from God's point of view that he has really tried to persuade us, absolutely tried every way. And this, I think, is why he's asked us to break bread, to have this moment regularly in our lives where we focus upon this utter reality that I will live forever, that my sin is no longer a barrier to that hope of eternity which he intends for me, and that this is why Jesus died. You know, in one sense, Jesus didn't need to die, if you see what I mean, on a theological level. Because God could have just said, okay, I'll give you eternal life and I'll forgive you, and that's that. He didn't need, literally need, to see the blood of his Son in order to do that. And yet he set the whole thing up so that that's the way it worked out. But why? It was so, as we, so that we might be persuaded. So that we might, as it were, believe him. Because our faith in forgiveness is so weak that's the reality our faith in God's existence might be strong but it's far more difficult I think to believe that really we are forgiven and that really we will live forever in God's kingdom and we may say that we believe that but really if that is what we believe very strongly and passionately that takes a grip on your whole life if you really believe that you are going to be forgiven and you have had this uh, experience of real forgiveness and you know that your sin and all you as a person uh, in the sense of your dysfunctions and weaknesses that you are not a barrier to that destiny that awaits you then you will be full of joy, full of praise and you will totally devote your life to him and to the hope of that kingdom. And the fact that every one of us, I think, would admit that we don't do that as we should. We don't have that joy, peace, and uh, total commitment that we should have. 
Well, why is that? It's because we don't, to the end, fully believe that we will be saved. And that's the necessity of the cross, to persuade us, not as a, in a sense, not that God needed it, uh, starting from scratch, as it were, with the plan to save human sinners. He didn't think, oh, whoops, the only way to do this is uh, blood, and yep, blood of my son. No, not at all. He could just scribble the whole thing and say, look, forget it, guys. I'll forgive you, and you're there. I'll give you eternal life, that's it. Um, in the same way as if we uh, forgive someone, um, they should just believe when we say, look here, I forgive you, mate, that's the end of it. Um, but we can, I suppose, go out of our way to try to persuade them that, look, this is for real, you might buy them a present. Or you might write them a letter after the event, after your meeting, when you said, look, mate, I forgive you, forget it. Um, you may do something to try to get them to see it, that look, really and truly, buddy, this is over. But maybe we don't, because we think, well, I told him, it's forgiven, and it's uh, forgotten, and it, it's, you know, behind in that sense. Well, that's it. Um, but God takes the initiative to try to persuade us, and it's amazing, really. And this is why I think the cross was so public, it wasn't that Jesus quietly drunk poison in a, uh, in a closed room, or that he quietly cut his uh, throat or threw himself over a cliff. His death was in the most public manner that it could have been. And you see that in verse 6 of chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 6, that those who re-crucify the Son of God afresh put him to an open shame. But that is what crucifixion was. It was open. And why was it so public, in a sense, so as to persuade men and women, for all time, of the utter reality that we really will be saved? And that, as he goes on to say here, that the promise that God gave to Abraham has been confirmed, has been shown to be for real. The blessing of forgiveness and of salvation. And looking again at this verse 6, that crucifixion was an open shame. That word open also means naked. And it's, I think, one of a number of uh, reasons that I think could be given for believing that the Lord was crucified naked. One reason of a number um, is that it's clear that the Jews were trying to humiliate him to the maximum. In the Psalms of uh, Solomon which are not uh, particularly written, I don't think, by Solomon, um, but they were, it was just a, a Jewish writing that was around just before the time of Jesus. It says that if a false messiah comes, you should really try to humiliate him to the maximum, and you will see in his response to that humiliation, you will see whether he really is messiah or not. And so that's, I think, what they did. Um, there's even the idea that sometimes they, they nailed people, they nailed men through, through their testes. And that is also a possibility that that occurred. But uh, the open shame here, this is the naked shame of Jesus uh, displayed there. And I think there is an allusion there to Isaiah 53 verse 12, where we're told that he poured out his soul unto death. But that Hebrew word translated to pour out is also translated to make naked. 
So on the cross, he made naked his soul. In another analogy, or that's not an analogy, in another metaphor, uh, God talks about making bare his arm in the sight of the nations. There was a, a, a revealing, uh, a making naked, a pouring out of the soul. And so that is what happened in that sense in the crucifixion. That there you saw, and get me right here, the nakedness of God. There you saw God revealed and at his most, if you like, vulnerable or most exposed. In the sense that, there you see the love of God poured out. There you see God absolutely revealed. Glorified in a body that was covered in blood and spittle, that was rejected, that had been betrayed, that was not wanted by his own people. There you see the essence of God revealed. And all this for us. He died for us. He paid dearly for you and me. And that, in a sense, was God doing that. Because it was God that was in Christ, reconciling the world under himself. It was God who was revealed. Of course, God himself did not die. But he was intensely associated and identified with the death of his son, just as any father would have been in that situation. And so, in that sense, all this happened, that nakedness, that revelation of the bare essence of God and of Jesus, in order to persuade you and me, sitting here in this context that we are now in, in the 21st century, that we really are forgiven, that no sin is a barrier, and we really will receive the blessing that was promised so long ago of eternal inheritance of the earth. And God has done everything he can to try to persuade us that he is for real in this. And that is why we take the blood of the covenant. The blood which, as it were, confirmed that covenant, which showed that that basic covenant that God made right at the beginning of biblical history to save us, uh, is for real for you and me.